Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Um, if you guys don't have Bibles, then raise your hands nice and high. The guys in the back will bring Bibles to you. For those of you that do have Bibles, two places to mark this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 24. Let's pray. Lord God, our, our Bibles are, are, are with us. They're open. And we are ready. Lord, we have come very, very hungry to know what your word says to understand what it means for us, not just, to, not just to hear the words and be unchanged, Lord, but we desire really to be uh, doers of your word, not just to listen and, and enjoy a good sermon or, or a good message or good music and all these things, Lord, but just to, um, to be changed by these things, to let them sink deep into our hearts and our minds and to let them affect our lives in a very, very real way. So, Lord, our, our, our eyes are open, our, our hearts are open, our ears are open to hear what you might want to say to us this morning. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. A quick question for you guys. How many of you have ever been stood up? Oh, how many of you have ever stood somebody else up? It's the person who's being stood up, that's an awful feeling, isn't it? I mean, that's a miserable feeling. Because, you, you know, you go through all those questions like, did I get the time wrong? Uh, did I miscommunicate? With, you know, what, what's going on? And, and you worry and... And then you start to feel really discouraged, you know, that you realize that they didn't show up to meet you. And sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's unintentional. You know, something happened, or sometimes it's intentional, but it's made to look unintentional. And sometimes things, you know, sometimes we, we have this expectation, we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and the person we're waiting for is just not showing up. And that's, uh, that happened with, there's a guy that I uh, had met for lunch, like, or tried to meet for lunch like three or four times, and he stood me up every time. I think I'd get the message, right? And if you know that feeling of being stood up, if you understand kind of that situation, then you'll understand how the people felt that Peter is talking to in Second Peter chapter 3. So keep that in mind, keep that illustration in mind as we get into chapter 3. Having uh, talked about Peter's intention for writing this letter, being to stir people up, and we'll, we'll read that in chapter 3 again, he's talked about encouraging us to take what God has given us and, and make sure that there's no question by looking at our lives that we are people who serve the Lord. There should be no way we would, someone would look at your life and go, I don't really know. I, you know, I, I, I know they talk about being Christian, but I don't really see anything in their lives that really indicates that. I mean, I could sit here and say, you know, I am an airline pilot. Did you know that? I'm an airline pilot. I mean, I've never flown a plane. I don't own a uniform. I don't receive paychecks from any airline, but I'm an airline pilot. Now, don't judge me. Tell me I'm not an airline pilot. Right? You get it, right? You see what I'm saying. There are, there's clearly, it's easy to say you're something, to make a claim, but the question is, are there things to back that up in your life? And that's what Peter is wanting, he's saying, look, make sure that there are. Make sure that you're not just talking the talk, but you're walking the walk. And chapter two is a very, very challenging chapter about the seductiveness of false teachers who try to lure people away and they smuggle in. They smuggle in their, their wrong teaching right alongside and join to what we would call good teaching. They don't stand at the door and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. They smuggle, they smuggle it in attached to something that's acceptable. And so you have to be very careful. So chapter 2 really lays into uh, false teachers. And then chapter 3 begins with the word 
beloved. I like Peter. He can just change gears like that, you know. He goes from talking to do- about dogs and vomit in chapter 2 to, oh, beloved. <laughs> uh, Peter, I'm still stuck on the dog vomiting and eating it, you know. But he says beloved, and he means it. You know, big, burly fisherman Peter, is, is, he uses the word precious a lot. And that's just kind of cute to me. I mean, here we picture Peter as this strong guy, and he drags this net of fish. You know, no, they could, no one else could handle it, but Peter drags it up onto the shore, and he uses the word precious. And he uses the word beloved. Because that's the heart. This Peter is, is, Jesus takes him from being a fisherman to being a shepherd. He says, tend my sheep. And his heart behind this, his heart for his people, is one of love. And so he looks at them, he writes to them, and he says, Beloved, those that are dearly loved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the, word that, the world that existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men." Let me read a little bit farther. Verse 8 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the, day, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I read the extended passage there, and so we'll go back and, and look at it piece by piece. Chapter 3 is dealing with another aspect of the false teaching that was existing in Peter's day and and really exists very similarly today uh, among the church and uh, and we hear these arguments all the time. So he says, beloved, I'm I'm writing to you. This is the second time I'm writing to you. And here's where he he declares again his intention. Both the letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, both the letters I've written because I want to stir up your pure minds. I want to awaken you. And we've talked about that over the last number of weeks. That's the title for the whole series in in 2 Peter is to stir you up. And I like that about Peter. He doesn't just sit back. You know, sometimes we watch the news and we get moved by something we see. And we say, you know, man, someone should do something about that. Someone else is the implication, right? I've got things to do, but someone else should do something about that. And Peter is not willing to, he's not content to just sit back and say, well, you know, there's a lot of false teaching going on. Oh, well. Whatever, you know, whatever will be, will be. I like Peter because he's moved to action. He wants to be an encourager to other people. He wants to strengthen people. He wants to challenge them. Now, I like to do that. If you know, I love to challenge people. And it's just part of the way I'm, I'm wired. Maybe, you know, I, I, sometimes it can be a, a challenging thing to do, to challenge people. But Peter, says, I, I couldn't just sit back and, and pretend nothing was ha- happening. I needed to write twice to stir up your pure minds. Now, again, the false teachers were stirring them up according to their, their emotions and their desires. That's what the false teachers were using. But Peter says, I'm going to make an appeal to what? To your mind. 
I want you to think about this. And I, and, and I, like, do, I like reasoning. Because there are a lot of ways to appeal to people to get them to change, right? Matter of fact, I looked this up today, uh, yesterday actually. Have you ever heard of snob appeal? You would, you would admit it, but you have. Snob appeal. There, see, there's a lot of ways people, advertisers, and people that speak can appeal. Uh, even within the church, there are many, we can do emotional appeals. Uh, in courtrooms, they do an appeal to emotion. You want to, if there's a jury, the lawyer might want to make this person look really wicked and evil. But they might look and, and have done some wicked and evil things. That doesn't mean they're guilty of that thing. But, but to try to sway your emotion to get you to, to vote according to what they want you to vote. So they can appeal to emotions. Matter of fact, the, um, the Mormon church appeals to emotions. If you hear what they're saying and you feel what? A burning within your belly. That's somehow supposed to indicate that it was true. Or that you need some kind of something for indigestion or something like that. But they want to appeal to emotion if you felt a certain way. And a lot of people, you know, sometimes your first walk toward Christ can be in a, you know, based on an emotional appeal. And we have to be careful because an emotional appeal doesn't mean that what was said was true. I want to appeal to you, and I think Peter wants to appeal to your mind, not based on emotion or not based on this. This snob appeal refers to the qualities or attributes of a product that might appeal to a consumer with snobby tastes. It may refer to the actual product itself or the exclusivity the consumer could potentially experience as a result of owning the product that's being advertised. The snob appeal is to persuade you to purchase the product or service by convincing you that this purchase will elevate your status. So things like cigarette ads with big tough guys smoking cigarettes make it seem that the consumer too could be almost, or excuse me, amongst the elite hardy men who smoke cigarettes. Commercials that show men drinking a certain brand of beer, attracting all of the beautiful women in a bar, gives the underlying message that drinking that beer will make you more attractive to women. Food commercials that, that, that indicate to parents that if you serve your family this food that's number one, then, then that's going to make you a top-notch parent because you're serving the food that is number one. So you see all these things, matter of fact, soda. Now, if soda companies could make appeals based on truth, they wouldn't have a whole lot to use, right? Well, it's got a lot of sugar, a lot of chemicals, and it's carbonated. And that's not going to make you want to go out and buy it. But so they appeal to your emotions, and they put, it with, they put happy people drinking sodas with you know, eyes wide open, and they're having a good time. That's all part of the advertiser's trick to appeal to your emotions. And that was part of the uh, trick of the false teachers. A false teacher is going to appeal largely to your desires. What do you want to hear? That's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to appeal to your desires, but not our beloved Peter here. What's Peter appealing to? He says, I want to stir up your pure minds. Now, we would all go, pure minds. Oh, boy, we're in trouble. But what, pure is not really great. It would be sincere, the sincere mind. It, sincere is a word that means you can hold it up to the sun and look through it. It's transparent. So he's appealing to the sincere, genuine believers. And he's appealing to their mind, which I like, because I don't, I don't want to be part of something where I've got to check my brain at the door to believe it. I, I, that's what I love about being a Christian. Our, our faith is so grounded in truth, archaeological truth, prophetic truth, historical truth, 
all these, are, are, we don't have to check our brain at the door. So he's, I'm going to stir you up, I stir up your pure minds to waken you up by way of reminder. So is he telling them anything new? He's not telling anything new. And, and parents, we know the power of reminder. Now remember, wear your seatbelt. Wear your seatbelt. Well, they already know to wear the seatbelt. But sometimes try to stir them up so that at the, fr- at the front of their mind, we remind them to do that. Wear your seatbelt. So I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder that you may be mindful. You get a sense that Peter really <laughs> is driving this home. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's just reminding them of things that they've already known. And so much of what we do here Sunday after Sunday is just reminding you of things you already know. Because you're good at forgetting, like me. Are you good at forgetting? But there's something Peter says you've got to know first. That scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So the issue that he's dealing with here is what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we're talking, we're in the season of Advent, uh, coming up to Advent, the first coming of Christ. We celebrate that. But what's talked about much more than Christmas is the second coming of Christ. It's mentioned all over the place. Old Testament discusses the, the day of the Lord, which we're going to speak about here. The day of the Lord when, when um, God's judgment is poured out on a world that rejects him and salvation is given to those that accept him. So this, where God reigns, Jesus reigns on the earth. That day is spoken of in the Old Testament. New Testament, we talk about the same thing. And, and here, we don't use the word scoffers a whole lot, do we? So mockers, people that tease, bullies. Let's call them bullies. They're intellectual bullies. And here's what they say. You have to know this. And you guys have to know this. This is, this is for you today. He says, you have to know this, that we believe something. And Jesus spoke about it. That's why we marked Matthew 24. We'll go there in a little bit. But Jesus spoke about his second coming. It's all over the Bible. So you can't neglect that this has been discussed. You can't say it, it doesn't exist. But the, those that were teasing, he says, they're going to come in the last days. This is, the, this is our time. And here's one of the characteristics of, of their lives is they live according to their own desires. So you can, always, you can find them because they're going to be doing what pleases them, which shows what they believe is really true or what they're willingly overlooking is that Christ isn't coming back. And ve- let me tell you, you know, this is why I love teaching the whole counsel of God's word. It's, in a very, it's part of the gospel. The second coming of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as the crucifixion is, as much a part of the gospel as the resurrection is. But how often... Uh, do we see it being taught on in the church? Not very often. And so, the, so what happens is, is what we see right here. People will tease, say, well, you know, you guys have been singing songs about the days of Elijah. You know, we've been singing those songs for years. And where is he? He's not coming. He's standing you up. Remember the illustration we started with? God is standing you up. He said he's coming, but guess what? He ain't coming. No, no, I'm going to wait. I know the phone's going to ring. I'm going to wait just a little bit longer. Don't bother. You're believing a myth, a lie. He's not coming back. And that's what people will begin to tease. And in this day and age, there's books written and all kinds of things questioning 
whether or not this is a, a truth, whether or not Jesus is really coming back. Because you've got to admit it, from where we sit, it, it you know, kind of seems a little iffy. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was on the earth, and lots of time is passing, and it's easy to begin to think, eh, I'm not sure that's really going to happen. It sure doesn't seem like it, right? We just go on every day, day by day, things happen, and we really don't really think much about the second coming of Christ, do we? Hence, Peter saying, I've got to stir your minds up to remember this. It could happen any day. And, and so he says, there's going to be people that come, and they're going to mock you and tease you. And part of the reason they do that is because they want to live for themselves, and for them it's not convenient to think that Christ could come back. So they're going to walk according to their own lusts, that's how they're going to live. And here's what they're going to say to you and to me. Where's the promise of his coming? Where is he? You, you, know, you guys are believing a, a lie. He's not coming back. And here's what they use to support it. For since the fathers fell asleep, so from the, from the time of the, the death of the, the you know, ancient people, the, the, their, uh, their, their forefathers, you could say, for since that time, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Man, everything from creation to the first people on the earth to, you know, people that have come and gone and died and lived and all that, everything's just kind of, people are getting better and better. Have you heard that? Life is just getting better and better and nothing, nothing's really changed. And, and that's their argument. And here's what Peter says. For this, they willingly forget. And I, I like that, that phrase, they willingly forget. You could say they conveniently overlook. They conveniently overlook. Do you know that people do that with information? They conveniently overlook certain pieces of information in order to hold on to what they want to believe. Now, you, let me just step out of this for a second because the possibility is to willingly forget. That might almost be a definition of forgiveness in some ways, a willingness to forget. Now, forget meaning to not act on. A willingness. So this is a, this is a work of the mind. You can do that. You can willingly overlook or ignore a piece of information. And that's what they do. They willingly ignore or forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So here's what they're forgetting. They're forgetting the fact that at one point in time, there was a creation. And I'm not going to get into the details of the out of water, in the water. We'll talk about that in Genesis. How about that? Can we leave that for the study in Genesis where we could do a more thoroughly, uh, thorough examination of that? But basically, you know, the, there, were, there were these waters, this, and the earth was created from that. And then what are they forgetting? What else are they forgetting? The flood. Now, how much discussion is there about a worldwide flood today? How, much, how many people actually believe in a worldwide flood today? Very, you know, this is one of the challenges. Well, Noah's flood, it's a myth. And, and again, I'm not going to go into the details of it because there's so much, there's so much information. You can Google anything. So if you're really interested, go home and Google evidence for a worldwide flood. I, I had it printed out and I thought I could read all this to you, but you all can get on and, and do the research yourselves and I would highly suggest it. Not only do cultures throughout the world have flood stories as part of their history, but the scientific evidence, just one piece of evidence that I'll, I'll give you, is they have found fossilized trees 
some of them up to 40 feet tall and taller, that stand through the strata of the earth. They go, they, they go through the strata. So how could that have been laid down little by little over billions of years when this tree is up right up through the middle of it? And so again, there's so much information and evidence for a worldwide flood. Wait till we get to Genesis. There's going to be some neat stuff we'll talk about, some things I've been doing some research on. But Peter doesn't, see, he doesn't try to prove it himself. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to prove the flood to you. He says, hey, the reality is God created something and then he destroyed it. And then he recreated it. And so the flood destroyed life on earth, except for Noah. And, and he says, because that happened, it was proof. It's sort of a, a situation that says, this is possible. This has happened before. And it can, and Peter says it will, happen again. And the flood is the example that they are not one. See, we have to write away the flood because we don't want to talk about, you know, coming judgment in our culture today. We want to just, you know, be happy and enjoy ourselves. And, and, and Peter says, I want you to know and I want you to remember that there is, there was judgment on sin in the past and there will be in the future. This is very important to know. This they willingly forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God holding things together. God's word is his, his power. His word, if he says something, it is the power for that to happen. He said, let there be light. And light was. Just, by, just his word gives that, it, it, it contains the power for that thing to happen. So the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for what? For fire until the day of, day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Look, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know him, you've accepted him, you're saved. You're saved from coming judgment. You're saved from judgment. That's what the Bible tells us. And, and I believe that, and I'm thankful for that. But my salvation is not merely fire insurance. That's gonna, we're going to talk about that as we continue down here. But he said, if God, we, we, one of the things we love about God is that he is love. And that, I mean, that is fantastic. To talk about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, with the word love, that it's a personal love, that he loves us individually. He created us individually, and he loves us individually. To think about that is really pretty ama- amazing. And I don't think we stop to think about that very often, but... That's a pretty phenomenal thought. Most people would not talk about gods in that way. They're angry, typically. They want something from us. We have to serve them and be scared of them and all of that. But we have a God who loves us. He's love. He's sovereign. He's powerful. But he's also just. He's just. He does what's right. And part of doing what's right, if he says there is going to be a punishment for sin, then He's got to do it. I mean, if there are rules and they're never enforced, there's no teeth to it. There's no, there's no power in that. And we, again, we live in a world where we, what's, what's nice to believe is that everybody's going to be saved. And I would love to teach that. Believe me, I would love to say and give, give that assurance to every one of you. Everybody's going to be saved. But it wouldn't be right. And we live in a world that is now denying the fact that there's ever going to be a judgment, just like Peter is dealing with and it's reserved and it's sort of uh, it's 
the way he's saying it's reserved, it's saved. So right now, it's not happening. But, and it's not going to be by water again, right? That's what uh, God told Noah. Not going to flood the earth again. Next time, it's going to be by fire. Now, how's that going to happen? Well, Peter goes into some details about that, which are just as confusing as this. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. There's a couple of possibilities. But the judgment and, and perdition of what kind of men? Ungodly men. I mean, don't you look around the world and go, you know, this just isn't right. And that's why people look at the world today and they go, well, if God exists, why does he let these things happen? This passage answers that question. If God is so good, if God is love, then why does he let these things happen? Why does he let these things go on over there? Why does he let these things happen over here? And there's a lot of hurt and pain on the globe, isn't there? And we watch these things, we know these things, we go, this isn't right. Well, if there is no judgment, then it's never right. We believe in a God that's just, and that at some point, that, that here's, the, here's the things that he is just to forgive you because Christ suffered on your behalf. So he can forgive you because the punishment that was set aside for you was put on Christ. But he's also just then to punish those that have lived apart from him. And that's what he says here. So now he speaks back to them, verse 8. He says, but now, beloved, don't forget this. So there's this past evidence of, of judgment. But he says, for right now, I don't want you to forget this, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So God looks at time differently than you and I do. And that is so clear. I mean, for us, a minute is an eternity if we can't get onto the Internet. We forget. We willingly forget about the dial-up days. I mean, we get so impatient. And so for us, it's like, man, this has got to happen right away. And we go, Lord, you've been two, it's been 2,000 years. He says, nah, it's been two days. But years, like to God, he's outside of the realm of time. So we're sitting here going, hurry up already. You know, let's get this thing rolling. Let's, let's make this happen. And, and God is, to him, time's a whole different thing. He will wait. And this is why. Let, let me read on a little bit. With the Lord, a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. The Lord, and so the, the misinterpretation, the misunderstanding of God being patient, of God waiting, is that he's just slack concerning his promises. He's not, he's not a promise keeper. He's forgotten about us somehow. And, and that's, it's so easy to misunderstand God, isn't it? It's so easy to read our circumstances as one thing and to misunderstand. I'm afraid of that. Like sometimes I, we deal with stuff, right? We deal with things going, well, how do we understand the things we deal with? How do we, how do we figure that out? And a lot of times we misunderstand. And so people had a misunderstanding that just because God hadn't come back, they thought a long time meant that he just wasn't coming. Just like your date or, or whatever you were waiting for, maybe they got a flat tire or maybe they, their car broke down. And so you're waiting, you're thinking, all, them, all these thoughts going through your mind about why they didn't come. And meanwhile, they're, they're stuck in a place with no cell phone reception and, and the car's broken down. And they wanted to be there, but they're, they're, they couldn't get there yet. So with God, it's not that he couldn't come, it's that he won't come until a certain time. He said, the Lord is not slack. Man, don't misunderstand God. He's not slow at, at keeping his promises, as some count slackness. But here's what's true about him. He is long-suffering toward us. He is very 
very, very, very patient. The word long-suffering, it's a macrothumia. It's a long fuse. God has a really long fuse. He doesn't want to punish people. He loves people. He wants to wait and wait. And he will wait and wait. Aren't you glad? He, I don't know what year you got saved. For me, it was like the early 90s. I'm glad he waited for me. And he waited for you. And for some of you, he's waiting for you today. Today's baptism. And for some of you, he's been waiting for this day. And when everybody who's saved, who's going to be saved, then judgment will come. So if you're holding us up, quit it already. Just, you're, you're gritty. No, I'm not going to go up. I'm not going to get saved. Yes, get saved, please. So this can all kind of wrap up. He is long-suffering. He's got a long fuse with us. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why, why do bad things happen in the world? God is waiting. Because people that reject God do bad stuff. They have no consciousness of God. They do whatever they want. And God still wants them to be saved. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. Because So people ask the question, if God loves people, why does he send them to hell? You ever heard that question? He's waiting for them to accept him. He's waiting for them to come to him. The only people in hell are the people that never wanted God in the first place. If the ball is in our court, so to speak. He says, my will, listen, God reveals his will to you right here. My will, God would say, is that no one would perish. No one would be separated from me eternally. That's what I want. The problem is, man's will is not that they would spend time with God or be with God. So does this make sense? This is how, sort of how, why things are waiting, why, why God is waiting, why things are happening in the world. God is waiting. God is waiting. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come. Notice that. That's, that's important. The day of the Lord will come. This day of the Lord, uh, Isaiah writes about it. I wrote th- this. Well, I- Isaiah writes a lot about the day of the Lord. Let me read a little bit farther and we'll, we'll take the chunk here. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This guy's a fisherman. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So right now, we're sort of in the day of man. Right? We're not in the, the day of the Lord will come. That's the day when God says, all right, let me show you how it's done. He cleans house, and he sets up a new kingdom where what dwells, what did we just read? Where, where everything is done the right way. Man, could you imagine living in a place like that where everybody did what was right? That's hard even to picture, isn't it? But that's the kind of kingdom. So, so the day of the Lord, is that he says, I'm going to take over. And, it's, and how's that going to come? He says, it's going to come as a thief in the night. Now, if you knew someone was going to rob your house tonight, and I said, hey, I got inside information tonight, 3 a.m. 
a burglar is coming to your house, 3 a.m. So what would you do? You, you, would, you would sort of maybe take a nap. 3 a.m. is kind of early. Maybe you take a nap from, you know, you set your alarm. Maybe be conservative, set your alarm for 2. Right? You can snooze a couple times, still give you time to load the gun, still give you time to, you know, to starve the dog, and just be ready there. At the, so, so, you know, you got your watch, okay. You know, it's five minutes till. You'll check the news, check the weather. 3 a.m. on the button, the robber comes in, and there he finds you, gun loaded, dog growling, ready for him. You're ready. You knew what time was coming. But here's the challenge. What if I say the thief is coming, the robber's coming to your house sometime tonight? Oh, what do you mean sometime? What time? I don't know. Is he coming at 12? I don't know. One, maybe it's 2 o'clock. I don't know. So what would you do? Then as soon as you got home, you'd load the gun, starve the dog, and be ready. But you'd, and you'd have to sit there by the front door or the window or wherever he's coming in. You'd have the security cameras put in. You'd be sitting there waiting all night, right? You'd have to be constantly ready because you don't know exactly when the thief is coming. So that means that you have to live in a state of what? Readiness. Now, we, um, I asked you to mark Matthew 24, so just go there with me real quick. Because some of you like the red letters, and I, I hear you. I like the red letters too. Matthew 24, verse 38. We have verse, verse 37. All right, verse 36. Do I hear 35? 24, 36. But of that day, and so speaking of the same thing, if you look back at um, chapter 24, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us when these things will be. When are these things happening? And what will be the sign of what? Your coming. And it's all connected to the day, of the, the day of the Lord. And so that's the question he's answering. But that day, uh, an hour, verse 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So as in the days of Noah, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood... They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One taken, the other left. And so here's the exhortation. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, this is what you do know, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed him to break into his house. So if you knew, you'd be ready. And so he says, because that's true, he says, therefore, you also be and continually be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So there's, that's Jesus' words, the uh, Olivet Discourse. So go back with me to Second Peter, and we'll wrap this sermon up. There's a lot of, of debate about how, you know, is it the, the rapture and is it the pre, you know, pre-tribulation rapture and mid-tribulation rapture, all these questions we have about the end times. But here's what we can all agree on, because I like to boil stuff down. I'm a simple guy and we can spend hours arguing these different end times theories. But here's what we can all agree on. You have to be ready now. 
That's what Jesus said. Now, how do we be ready? Because here's the things we know about that day, the day of the Lord. It's going to come quickly and unexpectedly. How did judgment come to Sodom and Gomorrah? In an instant. How did the flood come? That day. And so for those that aren't looking, aren't ready, it will catch them unexpectedly. So what does it mean to be ready for that day? Does it mean we had to, you know, get barrels and put them in our basement with extra food and all that stuff? Is that what he's meaning to be ready? What does it mean to be ready? Jesus tells a number of parables about being ready. One of them is the parable of the talents. That he gives you something and then he goes away. And when he comes back, he wants to see that you used what he gave you. That's what it means to be ready. It means to be busy doing the Lord's work. The people that are expecting Christ to come back at any moment that are living ready are the ones that are regularly and daily serving the Lord with their lives. They're not waiting for some future time. And, 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 and they're, they're not expecting that he's not coming back at all. And so uh, we'll stop there for today. It's, it's time for us to, to stop. And we'll talk about the science maybe behind some of this, uh, the, the elements dissolving and atoms being broken apart, which is literally what that means when we meet again next week. Remember, next week, not one service, but two services. I want to invite um, the praise team up. So I don't know where this sermon finds you. You know, the word of God searches all of us, doesn't it? And I, I don't, you, know, you have to decide what you, what you want to do with these things. But at least you know that what's said. At least you know what's there. And it's hard, you know, sometimes we go, I don't see how this could happen. Like it just does, it just seems, just like I'm sure that early, th- those people, the three billion people that were on the face of the earth at the time of the flood, I'm sure they said, worldwide flood, what are you talking about? Let me give you one hint. You ready for this interesting hint? One of the, the, theories I'm reading on ice ages and, and the early flood has to do with the earth possibly have, having had a ring around it like Saturn at one time. It's like, wow, I hadn't heard that before. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. But we'll talk about that stuff in Genesis. The point is, is sometimes it seems to us like we can't imagine it, right? I can't imagine that happening. But don't let the, the simplicity of your imagination limit the reality of what God can and will do. He created all this, right? I mean, you are a living miracle. And if he can create that, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. So the, the, the truth is, is that uh, today could be the day of salvation. You know, again, that's not, remember, this is not an emotional appeal. We, you know, we have music and all that stuff, but the appeal isn't an emotional one. The appeal is to stir up your, the appeal is to stir up your mind about where is this world going? And why, why are things the way they are? And what's your role in all of this? And so the appeal is one from truth. And you have to know this morning that God is not willing that any should perish. And I am here to speak on his behalf as an ambassador, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. That's what he asked me to do. It's what he asked all of us to do, not just me. So as, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. It's 20 minutes after. Where's Michael? Michael, why don't you come up here for a second, buddy? Michael's getting baptized today. (laughs) 
his smile just kills me. I mean, and so Michael just, he offered to come up here and, and just speak about the things God's doing in his life, so. How y'all doing today? <laughs> hey, man, it's good to see y'all, y'all. It's hard to believe that uh, three weeks ago, I was homeless, and I had a, I had a sign that, uh, you know, that I'd, that I'd take out, you know, that I'd go panhandle. And uh, three weeks ago, there wasn't a day to go by that I didn't get drunk. You know, I either had a half a gallon or a fifth or a beer in my hand. And I remember sitting there one night, and I said, Lord, I said, I wish you'd let this bottle be the last thing I ever drank in my life. You know, and uh, I said, I, I wish, you know, that you'd hurry up and let me drink this bottle and it'd take me out of this world. You know, and uh, Brother Steve here invited me to a men's retreat two week two weekends ago, and uh, I went to the uh, retreat and I was I was hammered. I mean, I was drunker and coated brown. I didn't even know where I was at. You know, I woke up and the next morning I went to the first service and I was like, you know, I can remember going back to my bunk, and I, and I bend down, and I said, Lord, I said, please take this alcohol from my body. And that's been 17 days ago, and I haven't had a drink since. <laughs> and, I, and I haven't wanted one. You know, I haven't wanted one, and I thank God for what he's done for me in my life. You know, uh, like I was saying to y'all, I was homeless. You know, since that time that I left the men's uh, retreat, you know, I'm living in the Salvation Army. I got my wife back in my life. You know, uh, I worked a little bit last week and this, this weekend, you know, and uh, I've been looking forward to getting baptized all week. You know, I'm ready to go in that water and come out something new. You know, and uh, I thank God. I thank God for giving me another chance at my life. You know, and uh, I'm I'm grateful to have all y'all brothers and sisters praying for me, and you know, I'm blessed. You know, and. Uh, I remember what my old preacher used to say, you know, he'd say, get excited about serving Jesus, Amen. you know, because now, you know, it's time for us to get excited and get it back on fire for God, yes. you know, because, you know, we get too comfortable on these pews, you know, we come to church and we think, well, you know, I'm saved, forget about everybody else. You know, I mean, it, it's so easy to, you know, forget where you come from when you was where you at in your lowest point in life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm so glad that I have a God today that gives me a daily reminder of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I'm looking so forward to the things that's coming in my life. You know, because I, I went, let's see, Friday, I had an interview, you know, with an old boss man or a lady, 
And I went there, and uh, she didn't see favor. But you know what? God seen favor through me to apologize to her for what I have done. You know, and I thank God when I left that place, you know, that I could that I could have favor to forgive somebody and be forgiven of. So uh, just remember, you know, get excited about serving Jesus, man. You know, get excited about serving Jesus because, you know, you know, I thank God for what he does for me in life, and I thank you, Brother Steve. Right. God, God bless you, man. God bless you. <laughs> I think there's just, there's just nothing like love that helps restore people. Um, and it was funny because Phil and Tom were picking these guys up in Charlottesville, bring them up to the retreat, picking up uh, Michael. We just call him Moose. Can you guess why? And, uh, and as he said, he was drunk. And so Tom called me up. What do we do? <laughs> you know, he could barely walk, as he said. I mean, he's, he's telling the true story. He could barely walk. Man, get him in that van. He needs to come in and be with us, right? We need, we need him there with us. So, uh, and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So we're with you all the way. Uh, so let's stand. God is long-suffering.